If you have your Bibles, turn uh, with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be reading through verses 14 through 21. And as a reminder, we, we stand when we read the Word of God as a way to honor God uh, with our, our whole selves, our whole beings, mind, body, and spirit. And so we pray these words would come afresh, just as they were to the churches that Paul was writing to now, that they would be afresh to us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You be hey, Highland. Man, it's good to be back. It's good to see all your faces again. It's good to hug some of your necks, um, not all of you, because that would be weird. Um, it's good to uh, have some time to, to step back, to, to change pace, not what feels like a sprint, but a, but a jog. And uh, I'm grateful that this church provides our ministers with that opportunity to, to step back, uh, but particularly for me. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a little uh, what I did on my summer um, time study break in just a second. But before that, I want to tell you that, like, I got to be honest with you guys. When I'm not here, there is a ton of stuff that gets done. I mean, the, the foyer, the South Foyer got all opened and it looks amazing. Uh, we got to ordain two, our youth ministry team. Um, it was pretty awesome. There were also some tragedies that happened. Apparently, there was an alarming breakfast burrito implosion in Abilene. I'm very concerned about the lack of La, La Popular. We'll get past that. I'll get past that. It'll be okay. Um, but mostly, I want to say thanks. Um, thanks to you as a church, and thanks to those that um, shared this platform while I was gone. A lot of things got done, including some decisions about the fall, and I, those are one of the things I want to tell you right now. Uh, starting, zip with this uh, announcement, zip, yep, starting August 21st, uh, we're going to go back to our two-service schedule. Our first service is going to start at 8.45, which I want you to note is 15 minutes earlier than 9 o'clock last semester. We're doing this simply because we want more time. We want to be together. We want to be able to sing more. Uh, we want to be able to, to share with one another more. And so we thought we were always get feeling pressed to get done by class, and we just want a little more time. So we're going to start at 8.45. I suppose you can still show up at 9 if you want to, but, you know, you're just going to miss out on the best parts. Our Bible class will be at 10. Our second service, which will be our instrumental service, will start at 11. This is also the time when our college students come back. 
And to me, that is the most exciting time of the year. Our college students bring new life and energy to this place. Uh, we are thrilled about the plan that we have for them for this fall. We're going to be telling you that about that in the next couple of weeks. So I want you to kind of keep it in your mind. When that service time changes, that's when the college students come back. And that's when we want to be especially hospitable to new faces. Especially hospitable to welcome them into your home, invite them to come to lunch with you afterwards. They might say no, but that's okay. What we want them to do is know that this is a place where they are loved and cared for. I want to say a special thanks to David, Amy, Amy, Randy, Mike, Jerry. And I'm going to throw Janine on that list, even though she didn't preach for us this month. While I was in California, I'll get to that in just a second. While I was in California, I noticed this trend that anyone that got on a plane came back and tested positive for COVID. So I called Janine and I said, hey, there is a chance that I'm going to come back and I'm going to be positive. I'm not going to be able to preach this Sunday. She says, I got you. And she prepared a whole sermon that we're going to just keep on ice. It's Ephesians 3, so we're going to give it a little space, but I'm grateful for her too, uh, for preparing and, and being ready to serve this church. I didn't offer a theme to this group of preachers. I didn't assign a text. I didn't say work through, you know, the book of John. I just said, what I want you to do is let our hearts burn with fire. Tell us something about God that, that ignites something within us, that changes us. And, and they did, and we are grateful. We are so blessed to have all of these amazing preachers here with us in Abilene. So I want to tell you a little bit about study break, but I also want to preach this sermon backwards. So I'm going to start with the end, and then we're going to move to the beginning and kind of move forward from there. Here's where I want us to end today. In my time of being able to kind of step back and think and change pace and reflect and do some reading and study and rest in prayer, I have become convinced of one thing. And this one thing is going to drive what we think and talk about together for the next season. The church in North America is distracted and it is bought into a lie. The church in North America is distracted and it's bought into a lie. It's an insidious lie that tells us that we believe that we can have moral uprightness in a morally ambiguous society, that we can experience the holiness of God without experiencing deep relationship with God. We've bought into this lie that tells us that just a little bit is enough. Let's not get too serious here. We don't have to go too deep. We don't have to go too far. If I just show up every now and then and tell my kids to be good, that's enough. We've bought into the lie. I don't want us to spend some time to examine the truth instead. A truth that comes from Ephesians chapter 3. It's a prayer 
that Paul offers. All right, that's where we're going to end. Now let's start at the beginning. I want to tell you a little bit about my summer study break. We got to have a lot of fun, and what happens during the study break is that the, the nature of my job changes. I, I don't come into the office. Um, I try to stay as uncontactable as possible. I try not to check my email very often, um, and I don't, uh, I don't preach. And instead, I try to read books, and I study, and I pray. I take time to rest. My family this year went on a trip, a trip we've been waiting to take for three years. We went to California to see some old friends. I want to tell you about two moments that I had in California. In, in California, in the, in the, just outside of the city of Santa Cruz, which is a beach town on the Pacific coast, in this canyon is a camp. It's a camp that I've participated in for like the last 10 years, except for the last couple of pandemic years. It's where we taught and where we led and did retreats and stuff like that. It's in this canyon, and what's amazing about this canyon is that it is full of coastal redwood trees. And here's the thing you need to know about a coastal redwood tree. Drought that's currently happening in California, it's like a, I think it's like a 1,000 oh, year drought that's happening right now. You've probably seen the pictures of Lake Mead. Don't really affect coastal redwoods because they don't rely on the water in the ground as much as they rely on the water in the air. That every evening as it gets cool, moisture from the Pacific Ocean comes up and inland and kind of filters into these canyons, and the needles of the redwood trees, the leaves, absorb that moisture. And so they're able to grow incredibly tall. And in this camp that I went to, there's actually some old growth redwoods still standing. In the early 20th century, mostly, uh, most of the redwoods, except for protected land, were just cut down for lumber. It was all harvested. But there was a, there's a few left in this grove at the top of the canyon. And so you can take a pilgrimage if you go to this camp. It's about a three-quarters of a mile up this canyon, uphill. And you get to this moment, and you step into this redwood grove. Most of those trees are 200 to 240 feet high, 20 stories, and they're amazing. There's this thing that happens with redwood trees. Scientists aren't sure exactly why, but the life of a tree is not in the trunk or in the leaves or the limbs. It's in the roots. That's where the life always stays. And so when a redwood tree falls in the forest, crashes to the ground, the tree is still alive, it just lost the top part, the exposed part. But what that tree will do is send up new shoots in this kind of circle around the old trunk. And four or five hundred years later, these trees have grown up into mature redwoods, and they have a name for this. It's called a cathedral. It's called a church. And at the top of this canyon... There's a redwood cathedral of mature redwood trees. And when you walk to the middle of the cathedral, where the original long-gone redwood used to be, two, three thousand years ago, and you look up, you see this. And I've had a lot of stress this last year. 
I've had anxiety. I've been worried about my health. I've been worried about the health of this church. I need to confess to you that what I have not been is as faithful as I should to the promises of God. And something happened. I don't know how to tell you exactly what it is. But something happened when I walked into the cathedral and I let my arms fall and I let the trees take my gaze up and up and up. I don't know what it is, but I experienced a moment of transcendence. And I mean, the short answer is, I learned a truth that the backpack of burden that I've been hoisting on my back for some time is not God's burden, but my own. In fact, God has been ready to take that away at any moment. But the only way I'm able to do that is if I understand something about the nature of God. I want to tell you one more thing about those redwoods. They're 200 to 240 feet tall. The tallest are 310 feet tall. Enormous trees. 20, 30 feet around at the base. There's so much weight in the wood that is above ground. And the higher and higher it goes, the more the wind can just take that tree and push it and make it sway. In fact, strong breezes like heavy winds or even hurricanes, according to physics, to just knock the whole forest over. But that rarely happens because of the roots. If you were to get next to a redwood tree and you were to dig it up, just get into the ground, you don't see giant roots that would match what you'd expect for the size of the tree. You would expect to see roots this big. Right? You'd expect to see large, deep roots that tunnel deep into the ground, but that's not the geology of Northern California. Mostly it's just kind of rocky mountain. Instead, what you find is tiny roots. They're, they're smaller than pencils. They're smaller than your wrist, but they go out for every direction as far as they can. The secret of the redwood tree is not that it has tiny roots. It's that the roots interlock. One tree cannot grow on its own. The reason the cathedral works so well is because all of those trees intermesh. They interweave their roots, and so the whole forest stands together. When every tree has intertwined its roots where the life of the tree is with those around it, the forest is healthy. Forests can stand the winds. In fact, scientists believe that the trees talk in a way, and that's not Northern California wooey-gooey stuff. What I mean by that is if there is a disease that is attacking one of the trees, it will inform the others of what it's dealing with through chemical reactions in the roots, and the other trees prepare. It's a phenomenal thing. When our roots are healthy, 
when we're intertwined. When our lives have taken the, the effort and the moments and the events that help us to grow together, to interlock ourselves with one another, then we experience the healthy nature of what a cathedral ought to be. Point number two, very different. I'm learning to swim. I, I took swimming lessons when I was in elementary school. I got as far enough to dog paddle and float on my back, enough to survive. My parents said, good enough, and I never touched it again. In fact, I avoided pools for the rest of my life just on that very fact that I can kind of survive, but I'm not certain, so I avoid it. At this rate, at this point, you could probably rate me as enthusiastically incompetent. I think my previous experience with swimming has been to pull the plug out of the bath and fight the current. I do not swim, I flail. I do enjoy it though. Part of what I did on this study break was I would go every day and I would put my body in the water and I would do my best to get from one side of the pool to the other. And this ritual act of plunging my head underwater and experiencing the sheer terror of drowning while my four limbs spasmatically flail to move me across the pool has been enlightening for me. But I'd like to do better, so I tried the kickboard, and because I don't point my toes in the right direction, I tend to go backwards. I thought of joining a swim class to learn the proper technique, but the idea of watching five-year-olds lap me was so tough, I decided, nah. So I did the next best thing. I went to YouTube. And I thought, I'll watch the pros. So I watched videos from Ledecky and Phelps and Lochte. And they glide through the water. They have all these beautiful camera shots of someone swimming from below the water or beside the water and above the water. And they, it's like they're flying. So graceful. I videoed myself, <laughs> less graceful. I'm gonna get there. But here's the thing I can't explain. Here's the moment of insight. It makes me happy. The, the failing makes me happy. The learning and the growing. I, I, I've run for 10 years and about, oh, I don't know, 15 feet into it, I think, oh, I hate this, but I'm just going to keep going, right? And I stop the run and I think, oh, I'm so glad that's over. I don't have to do that again for another two days. But when I'm in the water, I feel, I feel something that, it sounds a lot like joy to me. And maybe there's something there about when my limbs, my body learns to move in all the right directions and my mind is able to tell my brain, no, you're not drowning. You're going to get a breath in a couple of seconds. Just hang on. When every muscle in my body is engaged in the right way, in the right direction to propel me through the water, I think that's going to be a different kind of joy. But right now in the learning, as my, the parts of my body begin to cooperate with one another. It's, it's this unexpected joy. It makes me happy. 
All right, so let me, let me jump to Ephesians. Paul's writing Ephesians from prison, most likely. And he's writing to this church that he loves. He's going to write the pastoral letter to Timothy, and Timothy is, is seated in Ephesus. And, and we know from Acts that Paul planted this church uh, for nearly two years he was there. It's about as long as he was anywhere in his missionary journey. And he loves the leaders there. He cares for them. So much so that he, he writes this letter that, that talks about the beauty and the power of the church and what the church can do to change the world. And basically the letter has two parts, one through three that explains his theology, four through six that says, okay, live this way in light of what I just told you. There's a therefore in the middle of it, it's the hinge of the book. And we are right at the end of chapter three, where he's just done explaining everything that you need to know about what does it mean to be church together. And he's about to get to that therefore, but before he gets there, he prays and then he sings. I imagine that as he's, he's saying this letter, there's, there's probably a scribe, maybe it's Timothy or one of the other workers that are with him that are, that are capturing his word. I imagine that his body is up and it's moving as he writes this letter. But when it comes to this moment of prayer, he drops to his knees. And when it comes to this moment to sing, he is on his feet and his hands are in the air. That's the kind of language that we hear in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Paul begins by explaining he wants to talk about Abraham. He wants to talk about a particular family that existed in this world. And we know the story of Abraham. If you don't know it, it's in Genesis 12. You can kind of go from there. But the story of Abraham is God calling someone to be light and salt, to be the example of what it means to live right with each other and live right with God. And there's ways that we can live well with each other. There are ways that we can interlock our roots to support one another when times are hard and the storms will come. And that's what God meant from the very beginning. Not a special people. Not a most favored son. But priests. Examples. If you want to know who God is, look at Abraham and his family. If you want to know how people ought to live with one another, look at Abraham and his descendants. But then God does something unexpected. God sends Jesus Christ into the world. This is Ephesians chapter 2. God sends Jesus to say that it's not just Abraham's family anymore that has access to God. That through the life of Jesus, all families are now welcome. Everyone on the face of the planet can experience this relationship with God through the indwelling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul just can't help to marvel at the wisdom and the beauty and the wonder of what God is doing. And what, what, what he does in this final turn is Paul's, of Paul's theological understanding is to explain what the church is and what the church does. He says that we are the people that have the eyes to see what God is doing. Christianity is not a spectator sport. If you buy into the myth that you can show up and consume and have a good worship, hear a good sermon, maybe send your kids to um, kids' church where they can hear a good lesson and maybe they'll listen to you a little bit more, send your teens to camp and maybe they'll be transformed and get up earlier uh, next uh, fall, then you've missed the point. That's not what Christianity is for. Jesus doesn't want to change your life and change your habits. Jesus wants to change your heart. 
me somebody. I'm preaching here. I've been off for five weeks. I'm a little rusty. You're going to have to help me out. We are the people that are being formed into God's temple. We are being formed into God's cathedral. We didn't get this on our own. None of us are in this circle of trees together because we earned it. It's because somebody else came earlier and their life died. But in the death of that middle tree, we have been given resurrection. It happens when we take the time to let our roots and hearts intertwine and become a tapestry. And it's not where you expect it is. It's not in those big roots. It's not in those giants. It's in those everyday lives. It's in those gatherings around our tables. It's in those small groups that are, it's the lifeblood of our church where lives are shared and tears are shed. Paul wants to tell us that we are the people that have been changed by grace, that we are led by the Spirit. And there is no way that I can get anywhere near that pool until my brain, my mind learns to trust my lungs that there will be another breath just above the surface. And there is no way I can get anywhere in that pool until my arms and hands learn to trust my legs that they're not just going to drag me backwards. As each one does its part, we move and we grow. And there's no way that we can be led by the Spirit until we begin to experience the wonder and the deepness of God. Brothers and sisters, the lie that has been sold to the North American church is that you can have all of the benefits, that you can consume all of the extras of church without being transformed by an experience with God. And the reason the lie is believable is because it looks like you can. It looks like you can kind of be the parasite. If I were to go really kind of gross, I would say be the cannibal that feeds off the body. But that's really not what you were intended for. We are called for more. So here are the texts. We're going backwards. We started with the end. I want to end with the beginning. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the fullest measure of God. Francis Chan, who's my favorite semi-charismatic preacher, he's reflecting on this prayer. Anytime you watch one of Francis Chan's prayers or if you went to his church when he was preaching in San Francisco, he would always get down on his knees on the platform before he prayed. He always, he, he had this reverence for a prayer that, that I never understood until I was a part of one of his groups. I, I came with a friend who was part of a cohort that he was leading of, of small group churches. And he said this to the group. He told the group, look, I don't care if you're a good preacher. He said, I don't care if you're a good leader. 
I don't care if you fumble around and you never even take a shower. If you're not praying for your people, you have no business being in ministry. And he pushed that cohort. If you are not praying for their children by name, if you are not aware of their concerns and their hearts and their deep longing for God, if you are not praying the prayer of Ephesians 3, why are you in ministry? Oh, that was convicting. Chan asked the question, have you ever prayed that Ephesians 3 prayer? I pray that you may know with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and high and deep the love of Christ and that you may know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Brothers and sisters, I've been carrying a backpack that's full of a lot of worry and fear. And I haven't been praying that you experience the fullness of the love of God. But this season is the season when that changes for me. This is the season that that changes for us. Francis asked for a love that surpasses knowledge. I gotta tell you the truth, I, I don't remember my wife's breakfast Chick-fil-A order. I can't ever remember exactly what she wants. I'll take the boys on Fridays or Saturday mornings and we'll go pick up breakfast and we'll eat it so that Natalie can sleep maybe a little bit. And inevitably, toward the end of that breakfast meal, I end up calling her saying, hey, what was it that you wanted again? I cannot remember it. It would be wise for me just to write it down somewhere that I keep with me all the time, but I cannot remember it. I go to Starbucks and I think, okay, I'm gonna get my wife something to drink. She wants two pumps of something, but I can never remember what it is. I can't hold that knowledge, knowledge in my brain. But, but I know her face enough that when I see the echo of the expression of her concern or fear or anger in the faces of my sons, I know what they're feeling. I can't remember the order but there is an intimacy that's formed that's deeper than knowledge of favorites. There's something else there. So that when I see fear on Micah's face, I know exactly what it is. And I think that's the prayer that Paul is asking to the Ephesians and to us. That we might know something more than knowledge that we might experience a deeper intimacy with God. And so we're gonna go on a journey this year to explore the deep meaning of scripture for our lives, to hear the drumbeat of the heart of God in the life of Jesus, and to witness the power of the Spirit. We're gonna talk about prayer. We're gonna talk about the radical nature of love and grace. We're gonna talk about the ways that Jesus has transformed us to push us out into this world, to be led by the Spirit and to be formed for the sake of others. Because I wanna know what the kind of prayer is that changes a person's life. I wanna know the kind of prayer that leads Paul 
in the very next breath to shout. Now him who is able to do more than we can immeasurably ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I want to understand the kind of prayer that led Paul to sing in that way. Let's stand and sing together.